Father, we, um, we just ask you two simple things. Number one, God, I pray that you'd open up your scriptures to make them easily accessible, that we could understand it clearly, because there could be some very confusing parts of this passage. I just pray that you would help me just make it crystal clear. I need help on that. Number two, and this is the bigger request, Father, I pray for people that are in here, who have come in here, and have some questions about what does it mean to be saved, or how does a person, for sure, with confidence, enter into heaven? So I pray that, God, you would answer both of those prayers, and then ultimately after those prayers are answered, I just pray that we would truly live more confident, bold lives for Christ. Only you can answer these questions and these prayer requests. So, Father, I I leave them at your feet, and it's your son's name we pray. Amen. I was thinking about this week. If you were to take a survey, there's apparently there's uh, the number keeps going up, but 7.125 billion people living in the world. Let's say we took this 7.125 billion people and we asked them, what one question would you like answered? I wonder what it would be. So. If we could take them all and say, okay, we're going to have one question. We can, we can answer for you for sure what would the question the world has be. I was thinking maybe it would be when was the world really made? I think that would answer the evolution question, which causes a lot of problems. They might want to know when, who shot JR. That could be or JFK, not JR, JFK. Jeez, not JR. I never watched Dallas. I'd never watch that show. Who shot JFK? Some people, that's so dumb. What is, uh, all right, I'll just keep going. I think, I, I just think what we're going to read today is the question. It is the question I think is somehow deep inside every single one of us, and we would like a very definitive answer. We won't say we do, but we do. And it's found in Luke chapter 18, verse 18. So if you could read along with me, this is the question. The title of your passage in your Bible probably says the rich ruler. Some versions say the rich young ruler. But he comes up to Jesus and he asks him a question. Look at what it says in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I think that's the question. If we could have that question definitively answered, I think it would solve a lot of the world's problems. For instance, if you go to India, specifically in the Hindu religion, they worship cows and they worship snakes. Sometimes they even will not swallow gnats because they believe it might be one of their ancestors. They will, when you die, if, if you're a Hindu and you die, often they'll burn your body, take your ashes, and sometimes walk 2,000 miles to scatter those ashes on the Ganges River because they believe if those ashes are spread in the Ganges River, they will instantly go to heaven. 
If you go to a lot of the Muslim countries where there's Islamic militants, they believe if you wage a holy war of jihad, you'll instantly be ushered into heaven. That's why a majority of those guys that flew their airplanes into the Twin Towers did it. They believe because they died in service to jihad, they go right to heaven. That's why a lot of the ISIS guys cut off heads. We might say, oh, they're just evil and wicked. Well, the truth is, if you get down to it, their religion says these acts help them make it to heaven. If you go to a Buddhist country like Tibet or Nepal where they go up to the Himalayas and some men will make pilgrimages up there with orange outfits and they will meditate on the word Om for 40 years. They'll just say Om. Om, Om, because they believe that helps them with their soul. If you go to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem you have what's called a wailing wall, where a lot of Jewish men will come up, Jewish women, they'll have all the Jewish black Orthodox outfits with long ringlets. They'll take their prayers and they'll fold them in little squares and they'll stuff it in the wailing waltz, what they believe is the part of the original Herod's temple where actually Jesus was walked by, but they, didn't, they don't believe in Jesus. But what they'll do is they'll stuff in those prayers because they're not sure God hears them. And they hope someday those prayers will be answered and they are hoping they will make it to heaven. Everybody has different versions of how to get to heaven. Wouldn't it be nice if we could answer the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I believe this answer is desired by everybody that goes to a funeral. Every funeral I've done, in the back of everybody's mind is, that guy in the coffin, is he going to make it? How do I know he's going to make it? This same question has fueled religious wars, especially in Christendom, between the Roman Catholics and the Protestants. Actually, in Ireland, they believe in different things, and they've had wars there for years. If you ever uh, like to listen to the music of U2, U2 means union of two, union of the two religions, because they're from Ireland, and they want unity between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, part of the big problem between those is their view on what must I do to be saved. They're different. If you go to seminary, most of all of your studies is about this question. How can I assure you you're going to heaven? Well, that's what this passage is about. Jesus is going to meet this guy, and this guy wants to know, what do I need to do to be saved? Let's read it, and then we're just going to walk through it. should be pretty clear. Verse 18, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal. Do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all of these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. 
But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. This uh, approach of the rich young ruler comes off of last week's message where Jesus says in verse 17, look at verse 17, Jesus is talking to the disciples and he says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And so you have this guy who just heard that, a guy who his whole life has been trying to impress other people with his riches, his title, wondering, okay, so if a child can make it in, and I've been working, what, what must somebody do to get in? And I think he really was troubled by Jesus and Jesus' answers. And he wanted answers. When uh, a lot of people title him the rich young ruler, it doesn't call him young here, but in Mark it does. It says he's a rich man, he's young, and he's a ruler. Sounds impressive, but what does that mean? Scripture's kind of vague. Well, when somebody's rich, we know often money makes the man. Actually, if somebody can be so rich that one day they might even become president. Not saying anything specifically. But in our world, money makes the man. He was a ruler. What that means is maybe he was in the Sanhedrin, maybe he was a governor or a mayor, whatever it was, he had title. He was important. One good thing to say about this guy, though, he was curious about religious things. He was spiritually sensitive. So here's a young guy who's rich, who had power, who was curious. And I think in the context of the previous story where Jesus basically saying your status and ability don't matter, become like a child that bothered him because status and power mattered to him. That's the point. Actually, I think most people' status in money matters. If we'd be honest, we would all like to be rich and important. A lot of us strive for that our whole lives. We try to prove ourselves. This guy definitely did. When I stopped to think about this guy, from all outward appearances, I'll bet you he was he had nice clothes. If he came to live in our day and age, I'll bet you he would have, you know, like a wardrobe like that, all the finest suits, the coats. I'll bet you he would have an Apple Watch. Any of you guys have an Apple Watch? Anybody wear an Apple Watch? Pedro, you got an Apple Watch? Because you are rich and you're a young man and you're styling. That's why I let him marry my daughter, see? Rich Mike, do you got an Apple Watch? No. You want one, though, don't you? See? See? I'll bet you if this guy... I bet you if this guy came to our church, people would notice him. He would be the guy that somebody would come up to me and say, Pastor Chris, did you see who came to church today? Can you take him out to lunch? If you take him out to lunch, maybe he'll start tithing. And man, we can get him on the deacon. If we get this guy on the deacon board, we'll finally be able to get something done instead of all these fruit growers who don't do anything. Let's get somebody. 
I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm just seeing if you're awake. Actually, some of you fruit growers got big money. We want to get you on the board. But I'm not kidding you. Every once in a while, somebody will walk in and somebody will go, hey, did you see who came in? Whoa. This would be that kind of guy. And so surely Jesus would be excited to have this guy in the kingdom of heaven, wouldn't he? Jesus often does things we would never do. Like he kind of makes this guy a little upset. So here's how the conversation begins. Look at verse 18. And this is very important. You've got to watch the way it's worked because what is said right at the beginning is going to affect the rest of it. He says, good teacher. Good teacher. It's a title of, basically of greeting. Good teacher. What must I do to possess eternal life or to have heaven? Let's begin with this greeting, good teacher. Actually, in fact, when doing my reading, no rabbi was ever approached as a good teacher. They just say rabbi because they were very hesitant about giving anybody too much flattery. So some commentators think all this guy is doing is he's trying to ingratiate himself to Jesus, trying to flatter him so Jesus will see him eye to eye. Every once in a while, I'll just give you an illustration. When I was, uh, I would, often I'll meet with some pastors. I remember one summer we were meeting with some pastors in Grand Rapids. It was really hot. And so I came in with shorts and sandals. And all the other pastors, yeah, I know. And the other pastors wore blue shirts, you know. Some had ties, polished shoes. And one guy looked at me and said, oh, sandals, huh? Sandals. Kind of like that. I did say, I thought Jesus wore sandals. I did say that, but the guy, sandals, huh? Like that. And then another guy came up, saw me, said, hey, I heard you guys build a nice big church right there on the highway. How's it going? And the guy who heard that all of a sudden's like, hey, what's your name? Glad you're with us today. Aren't you the guy that just mocked my sandals? But it's sort of like that. Hey, good teacher. Good teacher. Jesus, hey, I've heard a lot about you. I think you can help me out here. What must I do to get in good with God? Huh? Some people think the, actually this rich young ruler recognizes something about Jesus that's different. There's a greatness to Jesus that this guy just is saying is clearly obvious. So he's saying good on a positive side, good teacher. I want to know, what must I do to be saved? I'm not sure which one it is. But Jesus doesn't let him off the hook. So before Jesus answers this man's question, he says, if you look at verse 19, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? No one is good. No one is good except God alone. That's a huge statement. See, words, titles, phrases mean something to Christ. And he wants to know, why are you calling me good? Because, really, only God deserves to be called good. As one commentator writes, what this man has just said has huge implications. If Jesus was good and only God was good, the man better really wake up and consider who he's talking to. It's sort of like, do you remember when Jesus says to his disciples, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? 
We have to be careful what we call Jesus because if we really believe he's Lord, do we take him seriously? That's part of the implication. But he's also defining the word good. If he's saying only God is good, then the good this man's thinking of has to be ratcheted up a little bit more. For instance, when we say good in America, I think we mean something entirely different than what Jesus means here. So we'll say, that cake is good. Man, that movie was good. That football team is really good. But the good Jesus is using, in a way Jesus hears the word good, is perfection. Only God is good. What good means is integrity. Integrity means all the way through there's nothing wrong with God's character. He's flawless. He's perfect. The best analogy I can think of is this. If you go to anybody's basketball game or go to somebody who has a son or a daughter in this community that plays basketball, and if you ask them, is your child good at basketball, they will most of the time say, yes, my kid is good. They're very good at basketball. And often what they're thinking of is, my son dribbled the ball around that fourth grade kid and made him look bad, so my kid is good. How would they fare against Kevin Durant? who's seven feet tall and can dribble better than anybody in high school, and he can, he can just jump like that one little inch, and bam, he smashes it. How does your kid compare to Kevin Durant? Well, that's different. That's different. You're asking, is my kid good? You're darn right my kid's good. No, is your kid as good as Kevin Durant? Well, that's mean. Don't be mean to my kid. Don't be mean to him. I'm just asking you, is your kid as good as Kevin Durant? That's not a fair question. That's, that's the question Jesus is asking. Are you as good as God? Are you? Not this, not this nice sentimental baloney. Are you? Perfect. Full of integrity. There's nothing wrong with you. Because truly the way Jesus uses good, none of us can say our kids really are good at basketball unless they're as good as Kevin Durant or LeBron James. What he's, he's raising standards. Romans 3.23 raises the standard in saying, all of us have sinned. That means all of us have not made it to this level of God. All of us have sinned and fallen short of his glory. So glory, which is perfection, is the standard of goodness. Goodness is not in relation to your neighbor. It is meeting the perfection of God. So on that standard, Jesus will be addressing this man's question. That's what's in his mind. So here's his question. Good teacher, what must I do? That's the heart of the question. Just tell me. What actions, commands, behaviors do I need to perform that I'm good enough to make it into heaven? What's interesting in this passage, the word inherit means earning Earning eternal life. Another phrase they use for eternal life is kingdom of God. Another phrase they use in this passage is saved, being saved. A lot of people say, what does that saved word mean? It means you're in trouble because you're a sinner. You need to be delivered. So what do I need to do to be saved? That's the question. You could put it like this, what must I do to be able to climb the stairway to heaven? And it's more than just playing the song. Anybody play that song for the first song you played on the guitar? 
Can you play this, Stairway to Heaven? You're not a, no, you're just not good enough, Matt. You're not good enough. You can play the silly D and G stuff. Try Stairway to Heaven. That's real guitar playing. Just kidding. All right. Most people, I would say when it comes to what, what do you need to do to make it to heaven, we live in a secular world, which means this question has no relevance. Because there's two assumptions in this secular society. The first assumption is this. No one really knows. And because no one really knows, you are arrogant if you think you know. People will say it like this. It is wrong, it is wrong to tell someone they are wrong. So were they wrong for telling someone they're wrong? That's secularism. Nobody knows, and I don't want to be seen as more arrogant and smarter than you, so I don't know, neither do you. We just got to play it by ear. The second assumption of secularism is God probably doesn't care because God is loving. And when we use the word loving, we don't use the word loving the way the Bible describes loving. We use it as a kind of half-blind grandfather that's sitting in the den with his legs up on the Davenport who pats you on the head. And he doesn't really see what you're doing. But he's a nice grandfather. He's a loving grandfather. And he's a pushover. So when people say God is love, what they're saying is God really is a pushover and he's going to let anybody in. So that means any belief system is just as good as the other. Anything you believe is just as good as the other. So if you want to spread your relatives' ashes on the Ganges River, go for it. If you want to fly your airplane into the, well, you better not go for that unless you want to get in trouble with the government, but it might be a way to heaven. See, it doesn't matter, right? It's secular. If that's true, then that means God doesn't care and it was foolish for him to send his son to the earth. It'd be like God saying, hey Jesus, you want to go to earth and die? The only thing, it really doesn't matter that much. Some people will believe in you, but that's okay. It's the thought that counts. If that's what secularism teaches about the cross, then the cross is the biggest joke that's ever been thought up. It's a horrible farce. And Jesus is a fool. But Jesus isn't a fool. He died. He shed his blood because he knows it is the only way into a perfect heaven. It's it. So let's talk about that. There's two options to get into heaven. Only two. And he's going to talk about them. Option number one, and mind you, Jesus is answering this guy very seriously. So this guy asks the question, and it's built on this whole question, what must I do? Don't forget that. What must I do to get in? Human effort. That's the question. So Jesus begins in verse 20. You know the commandments. You know what they are. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not... Bear false witness, honor your father and mother. So what Jesus is saying, he's saying, okay, you want to get in? Be perfect when it comes to the law. Well, this guy, so what he does is what is the law? First of all, do you remember the story Moses came off of Sinai, had tablets, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. 
It's the moral law of God. The thing about the moral law of God is it's the expression of God's character in legal form is really what it is. So you want to know what God is like? Here's the law. So he's testing this guy. I want to say one more thing about the law. It's divided into two parts. The first four laws relate to loving God, you and God. The last six relate to loving your neighbor. So remember in the book of Matthew, Jesus says to the rabbi, what's the law? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the way that you prove that you love God with your, heart, your whole heart is you will love your neighbor. That's proof of loving God. So what Jesus is going to do is he's going to go through the last six commandments to see if this guy truly loves God. So he goes, starts with number seven. Do not commit adultery. That means adultery is sleeping with somebody that's not your spouse. Murder. Do not murder. That means, murder means murder. Okay, the next one is bearing false witness. That means basically lying to make yourself look good a lot of times it's in, the, it's in the court of law, but bearing false witness is spreading false truths about other people or yourself. That's number nine. And then he jumps to number five, which is really the most important relationship, the first relationship that's the most important, honor your father and mother. Well, look at verse 21. This guy said, hey, I've done them all done them all since my youth. I'm in, man. I'm in. And Jesus is setting him up. Because Jesus missed one. He left one out, and it's purposeful, and it's the tenth commandment, which is thou shalt not covet. That means wanting things. Not just that others have, but that really you shouldn't have. Wanting those things. So if you notice, look at verse 21. So he says, oh, I've done all this. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Oh, by the way, one more thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. He goes, okay, you want to do something to get into heaven? Give up everything you have. Sell it all. Sell your watch, your car, your house, your boat. Sell your clothes. Sell it all. Give it to the poor, and you're in. And he said this. Because he knew in the heart of this guy, things were his idol. He worshipped things other than God. What he's doing with the last commandment is he's addressing the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law. Actually, the letter of the law is a quick summation of the whole spirit of the law. So, for instance, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is going through the spirit of the law. And he says, I tell you, don't commit adultery. But if you look after a woman and you lust, you've committed adultery. So the spirit of the law is you have to be singular in purity to your spouse. Don't covet somebody else's spouse. So if you got that Sports Illustrated bikini swimsuit thing and you lusted after that, you broke adultery commandment. That's the spirit. Jesus goes on to say, do not murder. Well, you know, if you hate somebody, 
You hate them. You want them out of your way. You slander them. You want them just done. You've murdered them in your heart. See, so what Jesus is addressing, you want to be good? You want to be good? You've got to go all the way to the intent of the law, the spirit of the law. The spirit of the murder law is you have to start loving the people God made. They're his children. How dare you want them dead? So what Jesus is saying is by selling all to the poor, he's exposing the area of this man's heart that is keeping him from loving God. That's his idol. Some of you have different idols. Some of you do have adultery as your idol. I've never slept with somebody else's wife. You do in your mind. So in other words, Jesus... Jesus went to the root of this man's problems. He used the spirit of the law to expose his heart. So look what happened to the man in verse 23. But when he heard these things, he became very sad. Because that's what he worshipped. So is Jesus, just a side note, quick side note. Is Jesus saying here the road to heaven is selling everything and giving it to the poor? Is that his point? Because some people do use that for this. And if it is, as one man said cynically, then Jesus is advocating a system of economics whereby no one saved money or stored up wheat or did anything but live like a tramp. And if this teaching of his had been accepted, the world would have starved in 20 years after his death. So is that his point? He's advocating poverty to get to heaven? No, what he's doing is he's exposing the area of this man's life that is keeping him from loving God. And it's each of us have an area like that. Jesus wants everyone to come to the conclusion of verse 24 and 25. Look at 24 and 25. This is his point. This is the point of option one. So verse 24 is right after the man went away sad because he's extremely rich. 24, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He's using a hyperbole. He's saying, you know, it's harder for a man to enter into heaven, especially this rich man, to get it than it is for a fat camel to go through a little eye of a needle. You know, a needle that you sew with? You're saying, well, a fat camel could never stuff through a needle. Exactly. Neither can a person make it into heaven by their own effort. Ever. The law has one supreme purpose. To bring us to our knees and draw us to Christ. Go to Galatians real quick. I'll show you what I mean. Galatians is about six books to the right. It's right after 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. In verse 21. Verse 21 says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Meaning, is the law then kind of, if, if the law is given, but if I do the law, I really am not saved, then is the law any good? And Paul's like, no, it's not contrary to the promises of God. In other words, it's very good. 
And he's saying, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Let me explain it like this. This is my favorite illustration about the purpose of the law. Let's say this is water. And in water, let's say about an inch of dirt on the bottom, but it's been sitting there for a long time. And I hold up the water, and you're like, oh, look, the water looks clean. I'm going to drink the water. And if I say, just a second, I take a straw, and I stir the water, all of a sudden it will start stirring that sediment, and it will get brown and maybe even black. And you're like, you want to drink now? No, that's dirty water. Why? The straw revealed it was dirty. It stirred it up. In me, I have sin. It's in me. I inherited it, but I also acquired it by action. But the problem with sin is I don't see it. It's sort of like sediment that settled to the bottom. So I think I'm good. I'm good. God gives me the law, and he stirs me up. And he says, Chris, have you lusted? Chris, have you ever really hated somebody? Chris, do you want those things over me? And the law says you can't have them. And what it says is I realize I am desperate. I need somebody to rescue me. The law's intent is to show you option one is impossible. It's impossible. That's why if you go back to Luke, Look at Luke 18. To me, this is when the disciples really start growing up. Luke 18, in verse 26, they just heard Jesus say it's, you know, it's like a camel through the eye of the needle. Verse 26, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Exactly. Exactly. The point is, if I take option one, Two, what must I do, and I choose option one, no one's saved. You mean if I, if I wear a tie at church, that doesn't help me? No. That's kind of silly. That'd be like putting a different container in a dirty water. It doesn't do anything. If I dump that dirty water in a golden chalice, see, I'll get in. No, you're still dirty. That's all a tie does for you. Actually, it's almost worse because you can barely breathe. It's ridiculous. Looks good, though. Does look good. That's option one. To me, the question on option one really isn't, you know, the sell everything. It's come follow me. Here's the question. Go to the next slide. What area of your life, what area of your life is coming between you and your devotion to Jesus Christ? You need to get rid of it. And this is where... For, seems sometimes almost impossible. That's where this next part is amazing. This is option two. Watch option two. Option one doesn't work. Watch option two. And we find it in verse 27. So the disciples said, then who can be saved? It's impossible. Verse 27. 
Well, what's impossible with men, and Jesus agrees, it is impossible with men. What is impossible with men is, option two, possible with God. Let him do it. What must I do? Well, you can't, but God can. God can give you eternal life. God can save you. How? How? Look at verse 31 of the same passage. So the guy walks away sad. In verse 31, Jesus took his disciples aside, and look what he says. This is amazing. He said to them, and it's very simple, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. So they're walking, they are on their way to Jerusalem. That's the main city where the temple is. Also in Jerusalem is this mountain with this little hill called Calvary, Golgotha, place of the skull. So, they're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Verses 34, but they didn't understand him. What's he talking about? What he's talking about is how he's going to procure eternal life for you. And the key word is, look at the end of verse 31. It's awesome. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. That word in the NIV is fulfilled. That word in John, when Jesus is on the cross and he breathed his last, he uttered this word when he said, it is finished. The Greek, it's called teleos. It's accomplished. It's done. So when Jesus is spit upon, when he's beat, when he's mocked, when he died, when he rose again, that is everything accomplished for you to inherit eternal life. He did it. He did it. That's the point. Yeah, it's okay, Jerry. Don't be embarrassed. Say that again, that word. Yeah, excellent. That's it. I want you to go to... I was talking to somebody about this. Ephesians chapter 1. Look at this. This is so cool. It's Ephesians 1. Verses 13 and 14. And watch how Paul in Ephesians so exquisitely says exactly what Jesus said here. Starting in verse 13 of Ephesians 1. Uses the Phrase in him. It's a prepositional phrase. In, in Christ. In Christ, you are also. When did that happen? When was I included in Christ? Well, first of all, the word of truth. When you heard the word of truth. What is the word of truth? The gospel of your salvation. What is the gospel? That Jesus is going to be going up to Jerusalem. He's going to be whipped. He's going to be spit on. He's going to be buried. And he's going to rise again. It says, when you hear that, and then it says, and then when you believe it, believe in him, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So that means when I hear the gospel and I believe in it, the Spirit of God is given in me. What's funny, option one is me trying to achieve it. Option two is him giving it. And then it goes on and it says, and it uses the word inheritance. But watch how it says it. When you believe, you're given a promised Holy Spirit who's the guarantee of our inheritance. So how do I earn it? You don't. It's a guarantee. It's guaranteed to you. An inheritance, 
until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. In other words, it's a down payment. The Holy Spirit's a down payment to prove I'm in. I'm a citizen of heaven. I was explaining this to somebody. Let's say I like a house, but I can't, I, I got to go out of town. And the realtor says, you want that house? Yeah. Put down a down payment. How much? 20000 If I put down a down payment, he goes, nobody else will get it. That will be a deposit guaranteeing this house is yours. The Holy Spirit is the deposit guaranteeing that even though you're in this body and it looks like it's falling apart, you're going to get a brand new one because you've got a deposit on you to prove it. The Holy Spirit. Go to Colossians. One more book over to the right. The same exact phrasing. Uses the same word, inheritance. This, I love this one too. Colossians chapter 1, this one is 12 and 13. Verse 12 says of chapter 1, Give thanks, or giving thanks, which means we should be con continually giving thanks to the Father. Why? Why should we be giving thanks to God? Because He has qualified you. What's qualified? He's made you acceptable. He's made you acceptable. God has made you acceptable for what? To share in His inheritance. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transformed us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. By Jesus' work, we are forgiven. And because we're forgiven, we have left this kingdom of darkness and we are inheritors of the kingdom of light. And God did it. That's the point. So option one is you can do it and it's impossible. Option two, you can receive it by faith and he did it. It's very clear. It's very simple. Let's finish in Luke 18. I want to finish on this. Because Peter says something very interesting. Luke 18, 28-30. And Peter said to the Lord, See, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will not receive many times more in this time and in the time of eternal life. Some people could say, well, it sounds like Peter's given up things to try to inherit eternal life. No, he's giving up things to follow, not to, Mark Rawson put it to me like this, it's interesting. Peter's giving up things to follow, not to enter. He's already entered, so he's giving up things to follow. It's a big difference. And that's exactly right. And so the point is, if you give up things to follow, will you, will you be taken care of? Jesus says, absolutely. But we live in a Christian culture where actually we believe we, should, we deserve things. You deserve it. You deserve everything you want. You should get the riches that you've wanted. You want boats, happy. You need that. How's your wife? You have a stale wife? I divorce or get a new one. You deserve it. What Jesus is saying, if you give things up for me, you're not only going to get things better, but you know why we give things up? Because he deserves it. So you could say it like this, you're worth it. No, we give things up because he's worth it. He's everything. He's everything. He really is. And when you have him, you have the inheritance of eternal life. I, I just... Uh, I want to give my story. I, I give it often, but I think sometimes 
God gives preachers or he gives people so their story can be told. When I graduated college at the age of 21, I went to a private university, University of Dayton. I had a degree in marketing and communications. I wanted to go into advertising. My dream was to go to Chicago and be a rich young ruler. I really did. I wanted to be rich. I wanted to have nice shoes and nice coats, nice jackets. I wanted to live in up in Lincoln Park, Chicago. And I wanted to go to Division Street where all the cool, yuppie, rich, young people went to dine and drink. And that's what I wanted. I wanted power. And to me, that was the life. So I got a job in Chicago. I went to DDB Needham, which is one of the top advertising agencies in the world. They have a giant building right on Michigan and Wacker. Huge building. And they had a class in there. I went in there and I said, how do I, how do I you know, really get, it, get it, my foot in the door? They said, take an advertising class that we sponsor and you'll get your name around the advertisers. You'll meet them, but it's about a two-year course. So I did that. And while I did that, I got a job in Chicago. I was in sales. It was a terrible job. It's terrible. And while I was in that job, two things happened to me. First of all, is I failed miserably at my job. I had to get up about 5 in the morning, take the train into Chicago. I had a cold call sale. I'd go to buildings, and out of 100 sales, if I got four, I would make my quota. So that means being rejected by 96%, it was really depressing. I was depressed. I hated it. And I failed. God was breaking me. He was breaking me. Second thing is I started looking around at my friends who were getting rich, becoming accountants, engineers. They were changing. They were becoming cutthroat. They, the wealth wasn't making them better people. It was making them more competitive. They seemed to be losing their soul. In other words, God was preparing me, not only by breaking me, but he's awakening me. He really was. Two years later, I moved back to my hometown of Cleveland. I heard the gospel clearly, and I gave Christ my life. And while I was there, my pastor said, why don't you go study the Bible at Moody Bible Institute? I didn't, even, I didn't really know what a, I never thought about being a pastor. I really didn't. I just went to Chicago to study the Bible. That's all I did. While I was in Chicago, I had to get a job at a church. I got a job at a rich, yuppie church. I had to teach business people. One of the business people I taught worked at DDB Needham Advertising Agency. She heard me teach. She said, how would you like to work on my account with me? And it would have been like, if I would have heard that two years before, I would have sold my soul for that. I remember she said, you can have, man, I'll, I'll train you. You'll just be my right-hand man. And I'll tell you, when she said that to me, it sounded like a, a, a clink in a little tin can. Like, I don't want that. I just want to know this right now. I just do. Honestly, Darcy, I just did. And I feel what happens is we live in a culture when if that lucrative thing is given to you, people will so easily sell that sell their inheritance with Christ for that. They will so much rather have a cabin on the lake than maybe sacrifice 
give some of their stuff to help people in need. They would much rather just have it all than Christ. And I'm not saying you can't have things. That's not my point. But sometimes there are things that you know are keeping you away from following Christ because you're somebody. 